0: The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Movie Club podcast, the monthly or bi-monthly podcast where we pick two movies, sit down, watch them, and then come together to talk about them and analyze them and just have a lot of fun doing it. So thanks for joining us. Um, once again, we have a pretty cool round table of hosts here, and uh, we'll introduce ourselves right now. Starting with me, I'm Sean from FilmJunk.com.
1: I'm uh, Jay from the documentary blog and and Film Junk. Uh, I'm Kurt from Row3.com
2: and TwitchFilm.net.
3: My
4: turn. Uh, Omar from Twitch. And I am Andrew from Row3. And I already have to go pee. Nice. (laughs) Uh, So...
0: This uh, this episode, we are talking about two... Um, I'm not really quite sure how they're related, but one's a documentary and one is not. Uh, we're going to start with Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line, and then we're going to move into Werner Herzog's uh, Strochek, which should be pretty interesting, I think. Um, Jay, I think you kind of were the uh, instigator for both of these movies, so uh, maybe you can intro... Uh, each of them starting with uh, The Thin Blue Line. Great, Sean. Thanks.
1: Um, (laughs) So The Thin Blue Line is uh, directed by Errol Morris, who's one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, And it's basically a a noir crime mystery thriller uh, in documentary form. And this is why it's it's kind of uh, an important film, because... It's one of the first it's not the first i i would imagine but one of the first documentaries to really mix uh cinematic dramatic filmmaking with nonfiction filmmaking and um with i i think pretty awesome results um and it's an important movie because it actually impacted the real life story of of what's depicted in the film um so it's it's sort of a, a reenactment-heavy uh, documentary, and I, I think it was not nominated at the Oscars because of this. There's a lot of controversy surrounding the film because Errol Morris decided to retell the story of this um, murder mystery through a lot of reenactment using actors, uh, intercut with talking head footage. And... Um, so there there it's kind of uh you know put a, a wrench in the uh big documentary uh machine of all these people who are are purists and think that documentaries should be told in a, a specific fashion um so it it really opened up uh documentary filmmaking i guess as a an art form
2: was there a lot of film, like uh, or not film, but television that used reenactments before this, or was the reenactments started
1: on TV after this? This was uh, apparently a big influence
0: on television reenactments. Um, Well, the the movie came out in 1988, and I mean, to me, uh, right away, I think of like Rescue 911, Unsolved Mysteries, those kinds of things. mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, those were around that time. I don't know... Which came first exactly, but I guess I
2: could. It's funny, it's something you totally take for granted now. So, um,
0: yeah, Rescue 911 started in '89, so basically the year right after. So they copied pretty much,
1: um, <laughs> unless Errol Morris got some sort of leaked uh, treatment for Rescue 911 and was like, I gotta beat these guys to the punch, <laughs> <laughs>
3: um.
1: So, yeah, I mean, one interesting thing that I like about Errol Morris in general is he's very specific about the look of his films. And this movie um, has two cinematographers. And it's interesting because uh, one guy, Robert Chappelle, I I believe he did all the Talking Heads interviews. He worked with Errol Morris on uh, a number of films after this as well. But uh, Stefan Zapsky did the reenactments. And he has worked with Tim Burton on uh, a number... Of, like he did Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, Ed Wood. Um, so it's interesting that a documentary filmmaker would actually be con- so concerned about his visuals that he would bring a dramatic filmmaker, a uh, cinematographer, in to handle his film. I mean, he did this later on with uh uh robert richardson as well splitting the the duties with robert chapelle um so he he's definitely a cinematic filmmaker and it definitely shows in this film
0: um yeah i guess maybe we should each um as we usually do kind of go around and give <laughs> some initial impressions of the movie um this was my first time seeing the movie, and um, I mean, I, I liked it a lot. It's, it's definitely, if you've seen other Errol Morris movies, um, it's, it's, you know, very specific style, as, as Jay mentioned. But I, I think um, one thing that I was, I noticed, like, I know he's kind of known for the whole, the Interrotron looking into the camera kind of thing, and that wasn't really used here, right? So did that come after this film?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was on uh, Mr. Death. I, I don't know if he used that on a brief history of time or not, but, <clears throat> I mean, there's there's Errol Morris now, and there's Errol Morris then, and Errol Morris now, I, I still like him, but I don't think... He, he's gotten very obsessed with interviews and that in Terratron, and his films are growing, getting more and more talking heads heavy. Um, people love Fog of War. I, I like it too, but it's certainly not my favorite film of his. Um, if you look back at uh, Thin Blue Line and then Gates of Heaven in Vernon, Florida, he um, is a little more uh, open in his filmmaking, I think. He doesn't... He he, he tends to cut to um, old movie footage a lot. He does this in, in Thin Blue Line here and there, but... He really does that quite often, like in Fast, Cheap and Out of Control, he'll use a lot of old film uh clips and stuff. And um I I don't know, I prefer his his earlier work, I guess, but Thin Blue Line is the perfect combination of the two, I think. Yeah, this was my first time
2: uh with the movie. I, I always remembered it as one of these like really early Miramax movies uh, that that had a lot of infamy around it, partly because it affected the case that he's documenting, but partly just the way the movie fit into the Miramax catalog, which was mostly doing foreign and, and, and distributed stuff. Um, but uh, to sit down and watch it, having watched a number of other Errol Morris movies, it was really interesting to see that yeah, he it's almost like he is going backwards. Like this is like a perfect movie. I I won't forget the shake <laughs> in this movie that spinning spiraling shake. There's a lot of really powerful images and I don't know. I guess the interview stuff that you mentioned is totally there in that the people that talk to him just practically confess to him. It's amazing that you you have a camera and you're and you're just chatting with someone and you can get them to the point where they pretty much confess to something that they you know they've gone through the whole legal and everything else and and to get this sort of intimacy with both parties in this movie was was pretty amazing to watch.
0: Well, I think too that like I I don't I don't know how often, you know, when you think journalism and stuff like that and people investigative journalism, you think, you know, like tv shows newspapers things like that you don't usually think filmmaker i don't think i mean i'm sure there's been situations you know way before this movie where it was done but i mean this is a great example of someone making a film going in finding out things that no one else had found out and um it makes the film pretty special because of it uh i guess we'll throw it over to uh omar what were your uh, initial impressions of the film
3: um, well, this was my uh, first time watching the film, and um, I noticed after I um, looked Errol Morris up that I have only seen one of his films, other, one other film, and that was Mr. Death, which I really liked, actually. But I, for some reason, thought I had seen something else, but looking over his filmography, it doesn't seem like I've seen anything else by him. So, um, but I've heard about this one, but actually never gotten around to watch it, so, and I I really liked it. It was um, quite interesting to see how a case which was so blatantly, you know, complete bullshit all the way through got, you know, resulted in the end that it got, I mean, for this, uh, for this guy to be sent for life for a crime, he obviously didn't do. And it seemed to be apparent to everyone, even the uh, prosecutor. But somehow they got it through that Randall Adams got himself in prison for life. And um, it wasn't until they, he got that interview on tape that, Things started to change for him. So, but I, and I really like the uh, the way he handles the cinematics, and and of course because you've seen this type of format before, and seeing that this film kind of pioneered it, it doesn't seem as to me at least doesn't feel as 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 uh, what do you call it um, raw. Yeah, and 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 just I, I, if I had seen it. Back in the day, it would probably be more impressive. But it's like watching a genre film, a sequel to a classic genre film, and and and, and, and then you watch the original, and you kind of, you don't feel the, uh, you're not as impressed with the original because you've seen it done over and over and over.
1: Well, it's like when I first saw Jaws 3D and then went back and watched the first Jaws and was like... <laughs> This is no Jaws 3D.
3: Exactly. Exactly. No, um, yeah, so, but it's, it's really good. And I, I would, has there been anything done as a follow-up to this film? In terms of following the case after uh, Harris confessed that he, he, he screwed Adams?
1: There is yeah. no film follow-up, but I mean, you can no. read about it he He eventually was executed for the yeah. the crime that he was in jail in in the yeah. film, but yeah. he he confessed, but he was never um I don't think he ever officially confessed, like he was never charged no. for that. The only no. result was Adams being released. Um, mm. But after he was released, uh, he actually sued Errol Morris, which is an interesting. Uh, yeah. twist after the film for it because he felt Errol Morris was trying to take advantage of his life story rights.
3: Mm. Yeah, that's something I um, I would actually like to see like a, a follow up on that because especially uh, the uh, prosecution side because they obviously knew that Harris was lying. I mean, it was I, I felt that it was so apparent in the film that everybody knew he was lying. But they were for some reason Trying to pin pin it all on Adams, and I would like to I, I would like to uh, understand why they were doing that.
1: So well, I, I think it's similar to the West, West Memphis Three thing, where it's like these people get so caught up in solving the crime initially, and then when things start popping up that say, okay, maybe this is not so. It's more of a just not wanting to go back on their. Decision or their word, they just yeah, they just stick to what they said.
2: Well, I I also Um, thought it was a combination of is like regardless of these other facts, uh, we stand a much better chance of of getting this one through. So it it didn't seem to be about like serving justice. It seemed to be a it, it seemed to be more like an actuarial thing. There's this guy in his set of circumstances, and this guy in his set of circumstances, and. It doesn't matter who's guilty or not. We stand a better chance because of the age and the this and the that and whatever with this other guy. So we're just going to go ahead
0: and do the other guy. That's what I got when I was watching the movie. Well, Hmm. there was something that uh, stood out to me, and maybe this was just a throwaway line or something. But at some point in one of the interviews, somebody said something about how they didn't want to convict or they didn't want to screw up a 16-year-old's life or something because the one yeah. who actually committed the crime was like a young kid and and uh, the people in that community were almost, it sounded like they were protecting him because he was like one of their own whereas the this other guy, guy was a drifter. Yeah, the other guy wasn't. So uh, it seemed like they just decided to protect him and pin it on the other guy because he wasn't from around mm-hmm. there or something. Uh,
4: yeah. Well, I'm kind of sort of in the same boat as Omar in that, first of all, this is my first viewing as well and the only other... Surprisingly, the only other Errol Morris film that I've seen is Fog of War. Uh, I think this movie is more interesting... ...discussing again Whoa. in the last five minutes. It's more interesting what, what happened because of the film and the side stuff than actually watching the film itself. And maybe mm-hmm. that's a symptom of watching it 12 years later. Um, but... I, I don't know, while I was watching it, I was relatively unimpressed. Like, I was kind of bored. I'd be captivated for maybe ten minutes, and then there'd be a ten-minute stretch where I was just really bored and, and didn't care at all. I, I wasn't all that hooked into the story. I mean, it's. I kind of compare it a lot to probably um, Paradise Lost. And for some reason, with that film, I was totally involved in the case and interested in wanting to see what was going on, whereas here... Uh, I don't know. I just the people that they were interviewing were so excruciatingly dull to listen to talk.
2: Not not um, the two principals though. The, the 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 Adams and and the and the kid were or Harris were. Um, I found them to be really? very compelling. I, I found both of them to be so very compelling.
4: Monotone and so. What uh, uh, he barely opens his mouth. I mean, maybe you could call that a, an interesting character trait, but. Um I, I just kind of got dull with it. And then they start, later on in the film, they start adding in um more bits of the case that there were all these witnesses and stuff that, like, I don't know why that wasn't given to us right away in the beginning, that information. And they throw us these new characters, or, well, I guess i call them characters, people, witnesses, whatever, and they, too, were so just, I don't, I can't, they were just characters like the the one guy that was scared to tell anybody because his that he was with a girl that night as he drove by cuz his wife would kill like and and the blonde lady they were so unanimated and uninteresting to listen to talk i mean you can
2: well i think that was- I think the Go structure ahead. was uh and I'm speculating here just from a few things that I've read about the movie uh, because that's the great thing about documentaries. you watch a documentary and it, you know it encaptivates you and then you just want to know more and uh I, it must have been very frustrating to watch this in nineteen eighty eight pre internet where you can't just get that instant you know spend an hour browsing around but I think the initial reaction was that this film was almost structured like a like a like a modern modern documentary like man on wire where it's almost like a genre or a noir uh, style and and i think i didn't get this when i was watching it but i think the intent of holding back those witnesses and that was to make you uh think that adams was guilty and this was a straight up documentary that 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 he was guilty and then it's supposed to peel back the layers but curiously now I knew some things about the movie going in, and that may have affected things. But I never got that. I just Adams is such a easygoing, nice, laid-back guy that I, I never really ever thought of him as the killer. But uh, I see what you're saying with all these witnesses and that. I believe they held all that stuff back to just make it play like Adams was the killer, and then slowly flip the whole thing on its head. And say, oh, wait a minute, Harris is the, the, the kid, is the killer. It's almost like a a reveal. Now, I didn't get that when I was watching it, but I felt that the film was edited in that fashion to accomplish that.
1: Well, it's clearly a, a part of it, because even within the witnesses, once they're introduced, you you meet this woman uh, who says she clearly saw who was in the car. And she she's basically the one who testified against uh, Harris and, and or against Adams and put him away and then eventually you learn that she from her husband that she was trying to pin some drug thing on him and he basically says she'll try to put anyone away that she can and uh, uh that's something that you is revealed throughout like over time with her and then the guy who drives by who says eventually that he was with his wife it's it's a similar thing it's like okay well it's one thing that, to say that you drove by and you saw something. And then it's another thing to say, Oh, by the way, I, I had a, a woman in my car that I, I, didn't want anyone to know. You know, I w- it's, it's everyone has their own agenda. That right. They're hiding
4: like uh, a it's noir interesting How he, they played with memory too, because he said, Oh, I saw him very clearly. I turned around and, and, uh, I think the cop car was behind the other car or wait, maybe, maybe the cop car was in front of the car, but I know it was pulled over. And the police officer was right up to the window, and he was... Or wait, no, maybe actually he was... Well, now let me think about this for a second. Like, just an example of how the, the human mind or human memory is completely flawed by... He says one statement right away, and then sort of contradicts himself in the next, like, 15 sentences that he uses that he doesn't necessarily remember all that. Like, there were all those little moments like that of fascination for me. Um, And then they they would go on to somebody else talking about something that wasn't quite as interesting to me. You didn't like the uh, – go ahead. Did you you guys – did everybody in the room, in the virtual room here, uh, know before watching the movie that it actually um, had an impact on the outcome of the entire story? Like, uh, no. I purposely go into movies, as I've said many times, l- knowing as little as possible just to be for the surprise factor and going fresh and everything. I kind of feel like I wish I had known a little bit more about this case before watching the movie. Like I kind of wish I had hopped on IMDb and read some stuff.
0: Well, I think, didn't it say something on the actual DVD case about that? I kind of like, I had heard it somewhere, <clears throat> but I certainly wasn't actively seeking out information before I watched it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, um, you know, I think your point is interesting and, and leads into something else I wanted to bring up, um, which is, um, you know, just Errol Morse's style. Like He's a very detail-oriented guy, which is, you know, especially when you look at, there's been a lot of these kind of, like, court case investigative documentaries over the last few years, and it's like, you you look at the thin blue line and you compare it to something like dear Zachary and it's like the complete polar opposite because I mean dear Zachary is is charged with emotion and it's manipulative and and all this kind of stuff whereas thin blue line to me feels very cold and I guess clinical is is the word that I would use to describe a lot of Errol Morris's stuff and there's, there's a
1: humor in there though that is very obvious I think I mean the just the details I, the movie is about details it's like um, standard operating procedure is, yes, it's about the the Abu Ghraib prison thing, um, but it's about the power of a photograph. And the, I, I think this movie is just as much about memory and details because we're going over those same reenactments over and over and what people remember, what they don't remember. The one prosecutor that tells the story of um, his dad being at the, uh, at the theater when Dillinger was killed and just that... That story about the orange dress versus the red dress is is a perfect example of that um, so it's when you're visiting these people's stories and they're talking about things that seem uh, irrelevant it's because that's what they're they're drawing from that night like he he talks about watching the Carol Burnett show I mean that's a an interesting thing the the emphasis on the the Burger King milkshake like it's clearly supposed to have some sort of humorous element yeah. to it like seeing that milkshake fly over and over yeah. and discussing did it you know was she drinking it in the car did she get out did it hit the ground what happened um to me reads funny yeah, i mean but- it, it just reads so much analysis that it's to the point of a quirkiness uh and the time they spend in the drive-in theater like the movies they watch talking specifically about what movies they watched and the guy saying specifically i I didn't want to stay. I liked the first movie, but I didn't want to stay for the second one because it was like a cheerleader movie. I didn't really, wasn't really interested, but he wanted to watch the movie. And it's like just all those little details seem unimportant, but they're all a part of it. Oh yeah, they go to town with the
2: uh, with the clock and the popcorn, and you're right. Mm-hmm. It is by the fifth time you come into that, it, it it does start to get funny because it's like um uh like almost like an SCTV parody where they'll just keep overemphasizing and overemphasizing. But he's also you, you know whether it is unintentionally or intentionally funny, that's the point. Is that the filmmaker is also basically giving you the bullet points of why the case is flawed. Like how could he be buying popcorn three hours after the concessions were closed and how, I mean, these are major points that, you know, I imagine Morris himself was keen on because he becomes an investigator of sorts when he's assembling the movie and, and, and trying to turn all of these disparate interviews and, and, and stuff into a narrative, which you know, he clearly wants this to be far more a feature film than a documentary. And and I believe Herzog, who we're going to talk about next, always called documentaries feature films on the sly. <laughs> you know, like that's... And, and doing those details make the movie i, I, I didn 't I, I agree to a, to an extent with Andrew that the talking head stuff some of it is quite dry. you know a lot of the people are either uncomfortable in the camera um, or they don 't have enough screen time or they 're just like that gossip lady who I, I quite liked in the movie that just seemed to want to chat 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 <laughs> uh, but I mean ultimately he has to pull this into some sort of narrative, and the way he does that. Um, you know
1: he becomes a detective and and it shows in the film well, he worked as a private investigator previous to becoming a filmmaker, and clearly, he has an, an obsession with with that i mean he what you don 't see is when you see um these interviews on screen like especially the, the two leads you don 't see like the two years spent conversing with these guys and and trying to get them to appear on camera. I mean, uh, uh, Daniel Harris skipped a, a meeting with Errol Morris for an interview and killed someone that night. That's why he's in prison. So it's interesting that you know, with with the relationship of the filmmaker to the subject, just being them being on camera is a feat in ge- in in general. Whether or not they're uh, animated, I mean, they're in prison. They're they're I don't know. They're southern guys. I mean, to me, it, it just. If people are a little too animated, it seems that it's just that the camera is on and they're performing. With this, with the lack of animation in these people, to me, that just shows that they are, like, insanely comfortable with what they're talking about and what they're doing. Um, I mean, you could argue that maybe it could cut back on some of the talking head stuff, but I think this is just a film about analysis. Well, and and the, the reenactments are meant to be exactly that. They're just... All they are is they're, they're... I mean, they're shot completely unrealistically. And the weird thing is the sound effects in the reenactments are really... Like, the gunshot is really uh, fake-sounding, and you hear the whirring of the light on top of the car. And um, they're just meant as illustrations, and they're meant to be looked at over and over and over again. And his choice of images are so striking that when you rewatch these reenactments, it's like you can immediately tell, okay, that was different last time, that was different last time, and they never show the actual version of what did happen,
4: Well, which is I interesting. I like how they when they show the, the blue car pulling away two or three times, but with the different <coughs> emblem on the back when they discover that they've been looking for the wrong car the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sort of like that idea of again, human memory and what they were thinking about um and how time can sort of alter your perception of how things actually were but in terms of like the milkshake and showing the clock uh all that stuff those are you're right they are important details of the case i mean it matters where the milkshake dropped because that matters where she was standing and i thought i don't know i didn't see humor in it i was kind of it looked to me like it was just trying to be artful and maybe to some people it is. To me, it was just like, okay, I, I don't... I, this it's is
1: no broken embraces is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly.
4: <laughs> well, it uh, is. It's it, it, funny how, like, that you... the milkshake y- just run down the highway for two minutes wasn't that long. But it was just like, you know, come on. I'm more interested in the case than watching this.
2: Well, but no, I, I think that's the wrong way to look at it because showing something once... You just process it and move it on, showing something twice might underscore it, but showing something four and five times, then you start to build like like a musical piece you' you're you're that's what makes it you know an 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 art film or an artistic movie so you you're joking with the broken embraces but that in a way that's exactly what filmmakers like uh pedro Almodovar and and uh david lynch or or whoever. Call back and and emphasize things by showing things again and again and again that 's how you construct fictional films and and that 's what I think distinguishes uh, the thin blue line compared to your average uh, crime documentary I mean even the Paradise Lost guys don 't have this level of um, art to what they 're doing i mean you know there 's a lot of different ways to make a documentary but I don't know. I, I tend to prefer this way. I, I I want something to edge more into a fictional feature film than a, than a straight up, uh, documentary.
1: Well, I, yeah, I mean, there's a time and a place for certain things. And I think the main thing with this film is it's a retrospective case. It, everything is, it has happened. It's all in the past. Uh, paradise lost isn't They're filming it as it's going. And, um, so their 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 approach is a little more raw i guess and and i like those films as well but yeah i mean in terms of the thin blue line i just like it as a look at you know obsessive analysis of something and the fact that it actually had an impact is just is a bonus i guess but um, I mean, you look at any of the, the essays that Errol Morris writes for the, the New York Post, the, uh, or the Times, the
2: Crimean War uh, cannonball post yeah. is 50,000 plus words <laughs> on two photographs of cannonballs in the road from a war in the 19th century. Yeah. And it is awesome. It's actually a compelling, fascinating read. And he goes out everywhere and it's essentially just a photo of cannonballs on the road and cannonballs uh sorry a photo balls a photograph of possibly cannonballs that have been artificially moved off the road and the fact that he can go 50,000 words multiple flights 150 years plus on afterwards that he took himself to look at the lay of the land and everything it's it really shows a uh an obsessive mind
1: mm-hmm.
0: well and i i guess to me like i agree that the movie plays as funny at times and i mean it reminded me a little bit the interviews reminded me a bit of like gates of heaven just the kind of quirky characters that he managed to to capture but i mean this also reminded me of the uh the now infamous letter that harvey weinstein supposedly sent to errol morris Um, where he was, I guess Errol Morris was on, uh, was it a radio show? NPR, yeah. NPR, and he was talking about the Thin Blue Line, and Harvey Weinstein thought he was just flat out boring, and he sent this letter saying basically, like, talk in short sentences, don't bore people, you're not pulling people into the movie, and uh, I think he says, if you continue to be boring, I will hire an actor in New York to pretend that he's Errol Morris. If you have any casting suggestions, I'd appreciate that. So, I mean, like... To me, it's like it's funny, but and this kind of relates a little bit to Werner Herzog as well. It's like with both of these guys, it's like how much of it is intentionally funny and how much of it is just their own kind of quirky obsessions coming out as funny. That's like I I don't know the answer to that, but I mean, it's um,
1: I think they're usually they're probably 98 percent intentionally funny personally. You think so?
2: Well, Morris. I, from everything that I've read about Morris, is that he's a super anxious guy, and that he's always he's a worrier. I mean, I, I mean, if there's a connection between the two films on this podcast, it's the fact that those two guys were friends, and at one point they were supposed to dig up Ed Gine's mother's grave because uh, Morris was friends with Ed Gine, and he had pl- sort of spotted all the graves that Guyne had dig up. You know, he was the model for Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and anyways, he had plotted all the graves in the graveyard that he had dug up for this or that, and they all circled apparently his Ed Guyne's mother's grave. And these two guys knew each other and they were supposed to um meaning Herzog and Morris, they were supposed to meet and dig up the grave to see whether or not Guyne had uh, dug up his mom and of course Herzog was there because Herzog's Herzog and he flew in from Germany and blah, blah, blah <laughs> but Morris being a bit more of a, a warrior uh, and whatnot he, and even though he did all the research like he knew Guyn personally and spent loads of times like with these guys in the Thin Blue Line interviewing them he... He's like, well, what if we get caught? And, you know, what am I going to tell my mom if the police haul me in for digging up the grave of a serial killer's mother? And <laughs> uh, and you, you read a lot of things about Morris and like the legal battles he had with, um, with the subject of the Thin Blue Line. I, I mean, a lot of it is, well, yeah, I'm using this guy's life story and I've spent hours and hours and hours... Filming the reenactments and, and, and putting everything together, I mean, I let this guy out, but at the same time he's like, "Well, it's still this guy." And whereas Herzog, I, I think, would come at it from a different approach, so, but I agree when you say they're both super idiosyncratic, and I don't know if I completely agree with Jay of saying that it's 98 percent intentional. Uh, I think a lot of, particularly earlier
1: in, Mor- in Morris's career, it was who he humor, is. probably more humor the humor in their films. I I think the humor in their films is one hundred well ninety eight percent intentional. Um, I mean, there there are things in in his films that just times that things are are cut on like just comedic timing and things he leaves in that they're he didn't have to leave in at all that play for humor. Um, but that's just me. I don't know. Well, I, I think Gates of Heaven and uh, Vernon Florida are two of the funniest movies ever made so
0: but i think well with both morris's and herzog's movies i think you you get kind of what you put into them if that makes any sense like people can sit there and watch these movies people could watch the thin blue line and never once laugh never once think it's funny it wouldn't cross their mind because of how it's shot i mean it doesn't doesn't lead you necessarily in that direction but you can also interpret it as as funny in a lot of ways and i i just feel like it's both uh this movie and and Strocheck, which we'll talk about, just kind of like let things happen and and it's kind of like up to you how you want to read into it.
4: Well, you can put me in column A there. I, I didn't find anything well, I won't say anything. The the humor bits for me were what you've already mentioned, like where the one guy just goes off and talking about Dillinger or or um or that, but the I don't know. I showing the movies and the the time of the Carol Burnett show and the milkshake and the clock with the popcorn and stuff. Yeah, it's a maybe hokey in some ways, but to me I didn't think it was intentionally supposed to be humorous. I, I really uh, thought
1: that the no, details I've never said any of that was supposed to be funny. I I just say there's an ingrained quirkiness and humor in his films that i think is 100 intentional and, and 90, I, 98
2: and it's a dry it's dry though it's it's yeah a dry, it's, it's a dry it's humor very, it's funny because you you mentioned unsolved mysteries which uh the tv show that like, was pretty popular in the 90s i mean that show was funny because the show was even more bombastic and more like uh you know art bell late night radio kind of crap. Whereas Morris never ever strays into that territory. Morris is, he's very serious and the humor comes from how serious he is, but he never crosses into the line of parody that a lot of these TV shows that are uh, Morris never panders to his audience. And and I find the TV shows, they, they, they plan that Morris wants you to, you know, see every one of the 50,000 words that he writes and and understand every one of the 50,000 words. <laughs> and some people might find that level of, you know, pedantic to be a bad thing, but it's so much his strength that it would be crazy to say, a lot of people don't like this, I'm going to stop doing it. Um, I mean, the, that's what he does, and he's
1: exceptionally good at doing it. Well, one, one interesting aspect of the film i mean talking about the idea of using reenactments and whatnot in documentary and and whether or not that goes against everything that documentaries are supposed to be this one has like a, a two strikes on it because normally i mean sean you mentioned this as being like a journalistic sort of thing uh morris affects what's happening in this story. I mean, normally people would try to avoid having any sort of effect on their subjects or become a part of the story, and he almost seeked that out. His whole goal was, I'm going to try and reveal that this guy is innocent because I think he is. And um, not only did he attempt to do that, but he has an actual section in the film of his voice talking to uh, Harris about whether or not he did it, and I mean that's something that could be frowned upon by a lot of people. Did you guys think that that was a issue at all?
0: well, I mean for me it's like if he hadn't done that i don 't know if there would have been much of a movie here. You know what i mean like there's there are kind of these courtroom paradise lost and and those kinds of movies where the case itself is interesting and and right off the bat there's there's doubt cast on if if it's true or not and you kind of look at both sides but in this case it was almost like a you know before he came along there was no it seemed like nobody was questioning it so if he hadn't come in and started to you know make it a goal of his to to figure out that this guy was to prove that this guy was innocent then i I don't know if it would have been a very interesting movie but So, I mean, I'm, I'm all for it in this case. But I can see how some people might, you know, if you are trying to document something, that you should be kind of the passive observer and, and not influence what happens. But, I mean, that I, I believe that's kind of impossible. But, you know, I guess some people think you should strive for that as much as
1: possible. Well, it's interesting, that last tape that they play, <clears throat> just listening to being able to hear his line of questioning and knowing that this is the moment where he gets what he wants. And his line of questioning is, is very interesting because he, he kind of works him up to this confession. Like it starts as not even a confession. It starts as like, do you just, you know, asking, do you think that, uh, uh, what, why do you think Adams was, you know, ended up going to prison? He says he's just had some bad luck. Why do you think he was an un- Why was he unlucky? Well, and, and then, it like, that question, eventually, it goes from Harris talking about, you know, supposing why he went to prison and everything, eventually to, I know why he went to prison, and then, why do you know why he went to prison? <laughs> because I did it. Why yeah. did you do it? I did it because of this. And <laughs> it's interesting seeing that line of questioning flowing and realizing his ability to talk to people.
0: Yeah, I mean, it must come from his in- experience as an investigator, because not, I don't think the average documentary filmmaker would necessarily think like that. Like, they would go for the jugular right away. No, and, and
1: just his his guts. I mean, he's kind of famous for leaving people hanging, and Werner Herzog does this as well, where you just, you know, you ask them a question, they answer it, and then you just don't fill in any gaps, and eventually the person will Talk. uncomfortably fill in the gaps and start talking, and something will come out. So the ability to sit there, and and that's tough, to sit there and, and just look at someone and wait for them to fill in the gaps. It's an interesting technique. Well, it, it's totally dynamite
2: in the movie because they didn't film Harris while they did this. It, you just see the tape recorder, and so it, it almost forces you as the viewer... To listen you 've got no body language you 've got no visual reactions to judge you 're purely forced to focus on just the audio and um I mean, I read that the reason why they did that is because the motor in the camera died, and they were forced to do that but I mean well it, also it seems I, like the best possible way to do that, so it was like a lucky accident
1: um yeah. it's it's the most uh, you know talking about genre filmmaking and you know uh, mysteries and it reminds me of just you know seeing a reel-to-reel and the yeah,
2: evil dead one
1: yeah it's it's perfect and he does mention that when he asked him if he committed the crime he just slyly smiled and nodded which is something you don't see but you hear yeah you, you, get you it. hear it in morris's questioning um so it's a pretty crazy moment in the film i think
0: yeah <laughs> um all right well um, omar Andrew any other uh thoughts from your end of the virtual table
3: mm, not really um uh, did anyone notice that Adams looked like John Hawkes, the actor
2: no he well he reminded me of someone i I don't know Duke,
4: the guy from murphy brown <laughs> <laughs>
1: A combination of him and Ryan Stiles. Was that his name? From whose line is it, anyway? (laughs)
3: It's like John Hawks and Billy Bob Thornton.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, he's so
2: laid back. I guess because he's been in prison unfairly for so long it's just sort of you know you go through all the stages of rage denial blah blah blah. he's completely in the i'm so comfortable about it he can just lean back in his chair and chat Mm -hmm. with morris uh so casually he's not in any way self-incriminating or whatever it actually goes completely against the whole uh, thing in the usual suspects where the, the you know if you want to spot the killer in, in in the prison it's the guy getting a good night's sleep and in this case it's completely the opposite I mean he's just resigned to the fact that you know he 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 drew the short straw in the in the karmic draw and he and, and it's great to watch he's a very cinematic like like more than Harris uh he's he's a very cinematic character and I don't I think. A lot of the other subjects in 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 the film aren't i mean that that goes without saying if you just grab a bunch of people, they're not very few of them are going to be good for the camera, but it's interesting that the i guess hero or victim i don't know what um Adams is in the movie, but he's he's the most cinematic presence and he's the most interest- he's more interesting than the detectives he's more interesting than any of the witnesses and, and until you get to the tape with Harris, he's the most interesting guy to watch i, I if, if it was all talking heads just with him he i i would have enjoyed the movie as well i just liked um hearing him talk and i can't believe that anyone would buy this guy as as a criminal. i mean i mean the, the well, total well, psych 101
4: because i'm watching well, the movie and i'm thinking the same thing like this guy is oh he's doesn't seem like the kind of and then they start showing some of those pictures of what he looked like at the time and, I don't know, a <laughs> little, little shady.
1: He looks like Werner Herzog. It's that bushy hair, man. <laughs> bushy hair. The
3: muckle- Everyone looked shady
0: mustache, back then.
3: Sorta. Well, well, Harris is also doesn't strike me as a you know, multiple murderer as well, or a violent guy, because he's so laid back as well. And he's right. kind of aloof about it. And you, you see even older photos of him when he was... Um, he was being arrested in Texas. He had this, you know, beach blonde hair and looked like a surfer. Basically, it looked like uh, Matthew McConaughey in fucking uh, what, what's it called? Um, Fool's Gold,
1: surfer no. dude.
3: <laughs> uh, into the blue. No. Uh, uh, Sahara. Uh, no, the old one. Fucking Dazed
1: and confused.
3: Dazed and confused. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so it didn't strike me as a killer as well, but it was, uh, But at the same time, there was something off about him. Yeah, like this because like he ha- had this autistic smirk. or
1: something. I mean, he had this I had sort this of chip smirk. on his shoulder, like ch- just like a no remorse, cockiness to him that I think mm-hmm. really comes through. Where Adams is just sincere and and just even their their posture, like. Harris is just kind of sitting back and always has half a grin on his face and just seems like someone who's hiding something. Yeah. Well, and
2: the title of the movie, the the thin blue line, I found that interesting. I mean, the the this thing needed a resolution very fast because it was a cop that was murdered and and they they, you know, they take that very seriously and the movie is in reference to I guess a saying of what the police are, this this thin blue line. But I found if anything else the movie was not about um like the cop himself or there were, obviously there was the procedure element the detective element but it never felt like it was about the beat cops which i think the thin blue line is the most in reference to so it's it's an it's it's a it's a catchy title it's an interesting title but also not- it's very misleading
1: <laughs> i thought well i think uh, most it, people I, probably don't know what it means I mean, you find out in the film what it means. I think people going in wouldn't.
3: But if if this film was made today, don't you think uh, they would have had a segment about the cop that was killed? Because he was hardly mentioned at all, only in the beginning. And you never knew anything about him.
1: Uh, He's basically just another piece of... Evidence. Oh, well, that's yes. the, that's yes. another
0: yeah. Errol Morris thing where he's kind of like glosses over the human details and just gets into the important yeah, stuff. But. Well, no,
1: but he awesome. doesn't. He doesn't gloss over the human details. He glosses over the the most obvious dramatic details and focuses on the um, woman who watches TV a lot and wants to be a, a investigator and thinks she is one, <laughs> and the guy who was driving with the woman stashed in his car doesn't want his wife to know in the drive-in theater he focuses in on those quirks of of humans and and i think that's more interesting than learning you know oh this he was a family man that would be the (laughs) unsolved mysteries that would be the
2: unsolved mysteries approach which is funny that everyone that ripped him off ripped him off by taking the 180 degree approach like looking at the facts that he didn't although I must admit he really does go to town on that lady officer in the movie maybe this is a post gender uh, world that it just seems like they just just go to town on that lady and she doesn't (laughs) really ever get a chance to represent herself they basically just make her look like completely and utterly incompetent yeah, Which may have been the case, but it, it, it came off as particularly harsh considering it was her partner that was
1: killed. True. And the fact she was such a bad shot, she couldn't even get a, a proper bullet hole in the back of the car. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Women. Yeah. And she didn't know the difference between those two models of cars, yeah. which any yeah. guy obviously would have known. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. But, I mean, one thing probably worth mentioning before we end it is the music i mean just like using a cinematographer that comes from the film world using philip glass to score this is a pretty big uh an interesting choice for a documentary and i think the music is is the uh is right alongside the visuals as a a characteristic of the film that stands out and makes it the the film that it, it is
0: yeah, I, mean, I think the music is is kind of essential because, you know, because of the fact that it is a little bit of a uh, a slower paced film and 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 because it's taking its time with stuff, you kind of I feel like the music needs to be there to set the tone and the atmosphere and um, yeah, like I, I didn't even realize that uh, he did the music for this until I put it in and I was like, nice, <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for this. Nice. All right, well. um Any other final thoughts on the Thin Blue Line? Nope. Okay. so
3: uh, Did anyone anyone see the Rowan Atkinson series of the same name? (laughs) Uh,
2: It is funny how many shows and documentaries have been, or other things have been named that. Mm. But when when Jay first mentioned it, that was the first thing I thought of was the Rowan Atkinson series (laughs) because for whatever reason, the video store... Uh, when I was going to the University of Waterloo, like the alternative video store had a right. huge British TV section, VHS copies, and for whatever reason, that one was always out in front. So it was it was funny that that was exactly the first thing I thought of when it f- was first brought up last time. Uh,
1: Maybe well, next episode. I've never seen it though.
2: <laughs> I've never seen the show.
0: Well, well apparently no, was, uh, William William Friedkin also did a documentary in 1966. About police and the problems they encounter, called the thin blue line.
2: And then there was the Malik movie, which was the proper use of that expression, which it came, it was a war expression, right? The British soldiers, the thin, thin, red, line, the thin red line, which yeah. came out way after this movie, but then it also adds to the confusion because you've got these two incredibly well received movies on completely different subjects with almost the same title just different color
0: yeah see i wish i would have thought of the thought of it earlier because i totally would have suggested that we put them <laughs> together even though it would have made no <laughs> sense whatsoever <laughs> way
2: way more sense to uh to mix things with uh with strozek because the i mean the connection here is the fact that the two filmmakers uh, do fictional films and documentaries and they were personal friends and they both are idiosyncratic people and they're both completely like the opposite. Like the, you know, I, I imagine just being in a room with Morris and Herzog arguing would be pretty awesome just to, just to, cause they completely like, I mean, uh, Morris makes huge money, uh, doing commercials and promos and, and all these sorts of Uh, things like he did all the apple like think different or switch or you know the white background campaigns and he did some things for the oscars and that and Werner herzog thinks you know has been on record many times saying that commercials as the common language is the death of of human society (laughs) like it's just funny that they're they're so opposite uh in in their
0: approach yeah no that's true um so, well, I guess uh, we should get into Strocek then, which, uh, 1977, according to this, is that right? I thought I read yep. 76 somewhere mm-hmm. before, but, um, so, um, Jay, why don't you give us, um, an intro for this one? Well, you were asking before, or saying you weren't sure what the connection was
1: between these, these two movies, and I guess <clears throat> the only direct connection is when, uh, errol morris was researching his ed Gain documentary he was going to shoot it in wisconsin because that's where he was from um and when herzog came down to do the grave robbing he uh, took a liking to the wisconsin landscapes and basically stole stole it from her uh, from morris uh for strosek and and I guess that is one sticking point between the relationship, and then later on when Herzog ate his shoe at one of the premieres, it apparently really pissed off Errol Morris. But, um, so this this movie is uh, the story of Bruno S, um, who uh, I guess his last name in this is supposed to be Strochek and in reality, what is it like Steinem or something? Stein schleinstein Schleinstein. (laughs) um and he he practically plays himself to a degree um uh, a guy who's just gotten out of prison has some issues as uh i guess sort of an alcoholic and he ends up um getting together with eva who's a a lady of the night (laughs) and his uh neighbor this older gentleman And um, when Eva starts uh, falling into some trouble with her pimp, played by uh, Vigo from Ghostbusters 2, they decide to go to America, and they relocate to Wisconsin, and they find that it's uh, just as rough in America, but for different reasons.
0: Right. Well, um, I guess I'll start with my impressions. This is my first time seeing the movie. And, um, I gotta say like the first half, I was a little, I thought it was a little dull and I was kind of wondering where it was going and, you know, there was some, some interest with the, with, with the pimps, you know, they were kind of, when they came in and started raising hell, it was kind of interesting, but, um, definitely a bit slow to start. And, and when they moved to Wisconsin, things change up a bit, still a little bit slow and I'm still kind of waiting, wondering where this is all going. And there's a point in this movie where I suddenly realized like I just almost did a 180 like where I was went from not really caring, not really having any interest to being like I am totally on board. And I think it was the bank robbery scene, <laughs> uh, which I mean, at that point, it almost the movie almost turned into falling down for me, if that makes any sense. And, uh. And then, of course, the ending, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, is completely nuts but awesome. So, um, yeah, I ended up enjoying Strocek uh, a fair fair amount, and uh, it was quite an interesting watch.
2: Well, it was a first-time watch for me as well. Um, and I've, I've seen a lot of Herzog films, but he's so prolific that there's still a lot... Uh, of holes in, in my filmography. And and I haven't seen the other one with Bruno S. in it. the uh,
1: Enigma it. of Casper Hauser.
2: Um, and I must say, of all the films that we've done for the Movie Club podcast, um, I'd say about half of them I haven't seen, like had their first time watches going in, that Strozek was the best one ever. Like, that movie, I, I don't think I've had as much fun uh watching a movie like and and i and i don't just mean when the movie goes like completely crazy at the end i mean when the mechanic is just for no reason that i can tell pulling out a tooth or when the banker the obsequious banker keeps coming in like I, i that guy was awesome and the pimps uh uh were great completely unaware of the Ghostbusters 2 connection but that just makes it more awesome. Um and then him playing his uh, accordion in the middle of a of a courtyard or or him going on a personal discussion to the doctor. I mean, I don't know. The the movie is so it's the opposite of Morris. It's it's so loose and it's so it feels more like a documentary than uh, the thin blue line does it it feels like you 're just following this guy around y- he talks to him about his pianos and and he philosophizes they they teach the bird how to talk i mean the movie is really not in a hurry to get anywhere and and it but at the same point, it was just so much fun to watch these guys and then when it becomes a movie, when it actually has a a point and uh, you know uh, that actually kind of started to annoy me it 's like oh. Herzog's, you know angry young man and he just wants to fucking give his <laughs> thoughts on america and it started to get yawning but then it turns into this sublimely black comedy of of just epic proportions uh yeah and then by the time you get to the very end uh, yeah it was it was it was 100 times of awesome i love this movie
3: <laughs> all right omar Well, um, this is the first time for me as well. Um, I I found this film to be... um, Well, it didn't blow me away. I wasn't as as excited about it as Kurt was, but but I enjoyed it. I was never uh, bored or anything like that, but... um, I was kind of searching for a point, but then I kind of figured that this film was basically, after I read more about it, I uh, basically found out this, this film was made as a, like a favor for Bruno S. Because uh, Herzog screwed him over a job for uh, Wojciech. And uh, so it, it feels like it was most likely just improvised, almost all of it. And, and, and apparently he wrote the script in three days. So it it kind of it kind of looks like that like that way and uh, but uh, but it it helps to have these interesting world characters and these actors especially Mr. Mr. Scheitz was awesome and uh, and the pimps as well especially Vigo he was also in uh, in Mouth of Madness I see so. And yeah, he awesome.
1: blows his head
3: off in in the mouth of madness. Yeah. Exactly, and he was also in Die Hard, one of the German boys. Uh, uh, yeah. So, <clears throat> but I also agree with uh, Kurt in that when it looks like the film is trying to actually say something about how horrible America is and it does isn't the land of opportunity that everybody thinks it is, I was. Mm, it started to get, you know, it didn't impress me that much. But then, but then that fucking uh, bank robbery, <laughs> the barber robbery was. Uh... Barbery. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was quite awesome. Just seeing this old dude with that shotgun was just was fucking awesome. But but other than that, I mean, it, it's it's I think. What Jay usually said. It is what it is. I mean it's uh it's I don't think there's a lot of substance in it. I don't know. I don't know if you guys think that. But it feels to me just something he did for fun. And and he just you know, he he went to America, had a you know, just to uh shoot some stuff in the environment he he clearly enjoyed.
1: I think and, it was almost like when John Favreau and Vince Vaughn did Couples Retreat. <laughs> just to yeah. go to Hawaii. I think Herzog <laughs> did this just to go to Wisconsin. To Plainsview. Yeah.
3: yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. It, <clears throat> it. It's not a masterpiece, but, you know, it's fine. I, I found Bruno S to be kind of annoying at times. He's not a really good actor, but he's, a, but, but he's not an actor to begin with. But but he was um, he was interesting at least and that that what basically saves the movie is the in, these interesting weird dirty filthy characters that you know inhabit it especially yeah exactly especially the mechanic when he was i don't know what the fuck the <laughs> scene was about the fake sex it was uh, fake sex and uh, <laughs> this long long shot of him trying to get his attention of swaying his hips it was <laughs> yeah
4: all right. Yeah, that's basically uh, what I think. All right, Andrew? Um, yeah, my turn. Um, yep, first time view for me as well, and I love this movie. Um, for me, the whole, it was it was all about the tone. I mean, actually, I was on board right away when Bruno shows up, and just the his just strange and odd way of behaving. I mean, it, I thought that the guy was, you know, slightly retarded um, in, in a way, and, and maybe he is. And I sort of felt like he was actually that way in real life. And then, but then from there on out, it sort of felt like an experimental Soderbergh movie, you know, like where he just, like I think Kurt said, a documentary feel to it. And I, I did get a little bit of that. Like it just feels so believable. All the the, the characters don't doesn't feel like they're acting. It feels like that guy really is a mechanic and. Well, he, I he think,
1: was i think most of them are the, on the banker was a banker the mechanic well, see, was a mechanic
4: yeah it felt like a soda, like bubble or you know the girlfriend experience or whatever it kind of but the tone of the movie i really really liked i just dug for, for whatever reason like there's a shot of them in the car as they after they bought that new car and they're driving and it's just a it's a guitar playing in the background and you just see them sitting in the guitar or in the car and it feels like you know for 3 minutes we're just watching them as they drive in silence and there's a number of those scenes he, they'd show it again in the, in the tow truck and for one reason or another the the feeling and the vibe i get from those types of shots or just her washing dishes and him sitting in the in the kitchen practicing his accordion i dug the hell out of it i i really had a good time i mean i was i was at a 4 out of 5 level on this movie all the way through until the final 15 minutes and it became pretty much a 5 out of 5 film for me as well. Um, I, the, the robbery was funny and then as soon as they go across the street to spend the money immediately on turkeys and, and bread, then I was just like, this is hilarious. Um, and then it goes off from there. But yeah, I, I, was, I was big into this movie. I, I got sort of a Steven Soderbergh Tulane blacktop meets silent light kind of thing going meets
1: coming to America.
4: Well, no, there,
2: there is a, there is, there's someone should put together a film festival of, um, uh, Losers unequipped to survive on the road, road movies. Like, there's that famous Canadian movie, The Going Down the Road with the two newfies that come up to Toronto. And it, it, it has almost the exact same story as this movie. They, they come up, they buy a couple garishly expensive things, uh, just because the credit is available. And then they just get ground down and, and forced into a life of crime because they can't, Pay their bills, and I mean, Br- I mean, Herzog goes right out of his way to beat you over the head with the message. I think at one point Bruno says, "In Germany, I was just beaten, <laughs> and when I came to America, I was beaten by the fine print in the contracts." But at the same point, Bruno's still being beaten, <laughs> <laughs> and it, he just seems like a person that's unequipped to to make decisions outside of the moment and. Which is why when you watch the movie all those individual moments are so excellent, but then when you see that, you know, he has to survive, he has to continue, he seems very ill equipped um to do so. And I, I mean it it is a valid comment on 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 the United States and capitalism, but it's also an interesting comment on um the fact that Bruno really is, you know, ill equipped to survive just by the by who he is uh um just because he's so interesting and sort of self absorbed in the moment he just is not and and his hooker girlfriend uh she wasn't either
4: <laughs> well i i think that it's interesting that we never i don't think we ever actually find out why he was in prison, do we no alcohol and, and i like that idea he just gets out and we know that somehow he's disturbed in some way he did something and i kept waiting for that to to present itself like i thought for sure but the two guys that kept uh, bullying him and the girl it turns out that they were just sort of a catalyst to get them to go come to america they had nothing to do with the what the movie is saying and the, the actual story it's just sort of a uh, a starting point for them to get on the road, and so those two things—the fact that we don't know why he was in prison, uh, what kind of person he is—like I kept waiting for him to snap or for those two guys to show up in America again. I don't know. It's—it's it, it's like a plot that could have gone anywhere, and um, it sort of well, stayed restrained and on task for what the purpose of the film was. And I like that. he
3: he sort of, he of course, snaps in the end and with massive amounts of alcohol. And it's, it's clearly said in the beginning that all his problems are because he's an alcoholic. And mm-hmm. and when he finally snaps, he loads his, the truck up with beer and and the turkey and uh, goes <laughs> off on this weird, unexplained – it's not even a rampage. He just drives off angrily and, and buys mm-hmm. a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I, this is maybe going to sound weird, but the – the The Bruno guy kind of reminded me of Carl Pilkington. Did anybody else <laughs> get that at all? He looks like him a little yeah. bit. Yeah, like he looks like yeah, him, I and just that he was kind of mild mannered a little bit. And I don't know, I just <laughs> I just couldn't get it out of my head. Um,
4: Again, kind of mentally, beyond mentally unstable, like mentally challenged. Well,
1: he <laughs> is. He he is uh, he mentally. Is. He does have mental problems. I mean. Th- the the if you look at the history of the actor or actor in quotations he has a pretty insane life he had a pretty insane life at that point um interesting I don't so he had spent i think 17 years or something in a mental institution and his mom was a prostitute and he was a mistake she used to beat him blah blah, blah. so a lot of the stuff in the film was drawn from his real life and um but I I think that you know talking about humor and whatnot and and Werner Herzog always says he has an inability to uh, experience irony or or understand irony and and never really knows why people are laughing at things but I mean. Come on. I buy The the guy has a sense of humor. I mean, the the first thing that happens when Bruno gets out of jail, they say, (laughs) whatever you do, don't drink. And then he literally walks around the corner and goes in and orders a beer (laughs) at a place called
4: beer heaven. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, he and before he says, I'm not going to I promise I won't go do it the way he says it is like, you know, his eyes are crossed and he's kind of looking at the floor and he puts his hand up in a pledge and says, on my Hungarian pride of honor, sir, like he's almost drunk as he's saying it, or he appears to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, that was all humorous to me. I thought almost every line in the movie that he had was funny as hell.
1: And, uh, just talking about like imagery and, and direction and cinematography. And I mean, I, I remember having many discussions with, uh, with Reed Farrington about what, what good cinematography is or what a, cool images, and in his mind it is always just two Asians on wires with, like, (laughs) lotus leaves falling and swords. (laughs) He's looking for that sort of floaty gracefulness. Yeah, the Jingyi Mu, that's his name, right? (laughs) Yeah. Stuff. And, yeah, that's one aspect of it. But with Herzog, I mean, he's known for his imagery, and it's not necessarily what the camera is doing. It's not necessarily that, you know, the, the cinematography is flashy or, or, you know, whatever, the the composition. It's his what he captures. And it seems to me that he kind of loads up on all of these experiences that he's had or these things that have happened to him or what he's he's seen and, you know writes them down or something, or has them stored away somehow that, you know, oh, in this movie this is about this. So I I'm gonna bring this in. I'm gonna bring in the the chicken that's hypnotized by the straight line or the you know, whatever and uses those and in this it's like you know the the image of of uh bruno playing the accordion and the the thing in the courtyard and the whole scene with the doctor talking about the baby the oh, gripping that the fingers is awesome like that's just the stuff that herzog does the talking bird the you know anything with weird sort of like it's almost like a, a, a weird life lesson when you watch a Werner Herzog movie. Or you're seeing things that you have never seen. Like, even in Red Dawn... Or Red Dawn. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wolverines! <laughs> in uh, Rescue Dawn, when Christian Bale wakes up and the kid's holding that beetle that's attached to the string. And, I mean, this guy has... Images coming out of his asshole <laughs> and and you know the the final scene with the dancing chicken and and you know it, it's just that is, is those are amazing images and you know what the camera is doing isn't important it's what's happening his truck going in circles yep. as it's on fire well there's is a you know just there's a lot of powerful stuff in this movie and yeah I guess it, it the pacing is deliberate, but even when the the pimps are Terrorizing Bruno and he gets him to go up on the piano and he puts the bell on his head and the bell on his ass. And like, who, who, who does a scene like that? Like, I, I know that was improvised, but I mean, one big part of Herzog's direction is his um, willingness to have people just lose their shit yeah absurdity. and he likes that intense absurdity. yeah and he he'll he, it's like he's people are constantly teetering on the edge of being too overboard and he allows them to do it the whole time and he won't let them fall over and make a fool of themselves but he'll keep them on that line and obviously bad lieutenant is the the most recent example of that and it works in this I mean you've got the guy, the scene where the old man is doing testing for animal magnetism and you know, he's with those two hunters and it clearly is like, there were some hunters, they saw them, let's go ask these guys to be in this movie that he's not even speaking English. They have no idea what's going on and it just plays as this weird, real scene. And that's, I mean, this is probably my favorite of his dramatic films. Um, but i mean that's where his documentaries and his dramatic filmmaking cross he uses these images that to to uh get a reaction emotional reaction out of people that that 's the thing he he always talks about his distaste for academia, and no wonder his films are so built on a visceral response based on the images that he puts in them
2: they 're all about life but it 's completely i mean this movie is clearly has a, a, a very clear easy to process message i mean I love that scene with the baby for how just how Brutal. It, it, the doctor is like the, he's treating the the the, the baby like uh, like at a butcher shop, which of course is what Bruno is going to go through. So this is like the beginning of his life. To I mean, eventually you see the motorhome. That's another great image where he's just standing there, and the motorhome pulls out of the frame. Um But that image completely ties in with the three images at the end of the movie where you have the the truck on fire in circles the endless ski lift going around and the and all the the, the three animals doing their uh like burlesque show and and then that's herzog's incredibly black sense of humor of people spend their whole lives doing these repetitive tasks and and not really worried about it they're just trapped on the on the treadmill and and he finally i mean that's not herzog in, at all i mean he goes out of his way to make things as random and, and and unpredictable as possible but i think he sees a uh an absurdity in that and out of all of his films i think he captures it better in this one than than any of them but having recently seen bad lieutenant i found it interesting that they had a direct callback yeah. In this, with that um, harmonica player, he uses the same musical track in mm-hmm. um, in one of the wackier scenes in in Bad Lieutenant, and it's the closing music. I mean, it's in it, a way yeah, he's I
0: ripping mean, himself off. <laughs> the, these two movies, like Bad Lieutenant and Strochek, I think would make like a great two kind of doubleheader. And like, it, it's weird because yeah, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of Werner Herzog's fictional stuff like I've only seen I think a couple of his more recent ones and I haven't seen a lot of his earlier ones but it just kind of I mean this definitely makes me want to delve a little deeper into into other stuff he's done but I mean I guess that would be a question for you Jay like how does this you said this is his your favorite of his fictional films but like how does this movie f- fit into his filmography because like to me I was thinking well I haven't really heard of it too much but you know, like, is it... It's not necessarily the most prominent, you know, important, must-see Werner Herzog movie, but it's it's pretty enjoyable. I mean... Well, it's one of them. I mean, it's not, I
1: guess, his most... Uh, I know Enigma of Casper Hauser, I think, won the one of the Cannes prizes, like the Palm d'Or or something, and Fitzcarraldo is probably his big hit, critically in... Um, not necessarily financially, but, um, I mean, I enjoyed this more than, uh, Casper Hauser. Um, and this is a interesting one because it's one of the few films of his that's set in modern day. Um, so I, I, I liked it. I liked seeing his portrayal of modern America or even modern Germany. And and the whole message of, you know, the <clears throat> being beat in Germany and the dot the fine print in America. Um yeah, I, I mean I guess it's it's there and it's whatever, but um I just thought it was more interesting that, you know, not necessarily that America is is bad, but both things are bad and Bruno just can take a beating easier is an interesting thing to say about his character that You know, he talks, tells a story about holding his uh, sheet up uh, and Nazis whipping him. And as though that's even on the same plane as a banker coming in and getting, you know, trying to get him to sign a a piece of paper to resolve him of his loan debt. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I, I, I think it's just a matter of Herzog having so many ideas and just using some films to get certain things out there uh and this one was clearly a, a vehicle to get a lot of the stuff that bruno had in his life and on his mind out there and it, the combination of those two brains is a, an interesting product in the end
0: uh, so, i think like uh herzog is is in some ways he's he's like a walking contradiction almost because You know he on the one hand he's got like this cold detached logical way of looking at things you know and it's almost like he's not doesn't really feel the emotions of things he just kind of like lays them out there bluntly for people to see but on the other hand he's like the way he shoots movies and stuff it's like he he almost seems to act instinctively and just kind of use what's around him and it's very you know improvised and it's it's not logical at all it's like the complete opposite so he's got like these two sides to him in all its movies and it's just this weird push and pull I find with almost all of them well whether I mean, it's fictional or non yeah
1: he's a human being it's just funny I mean uh, with reason I it's his own fault with all the stories he tells about himself but He's become this mythological character that everyone thinks can't doesn't have the ability to sense irony and doesn't have a sense of humor and looks at things in one way and no other way. I mean, he's he's not he's (laughs) self-aware. He's a human being. He's playing people for I mean, he was in Incident at Loch Ness and clearly poking fun at his own mythology if he uh, you can't tell me well, he was no, someone aware. someone
2: once said that life every film would be better if it was narrated by Werner Herzog for that precisely that yeah. reason
1: and i mean he's he's aware of this and it doesn't mean he's not genuine but i mean when he tells a story about being held captive by uh like 13 year olds with guns in south africa Uh, and or wherever it was and and having to speak french to get out of it and then saying he regrets having spoken french i mean he's obviously that's a joke right
0: yeah i mean he like he you get the sense that he definitely is playing with people in one way or another and you know even like the quote about him saying that academia is bullshit like i don't i don't know if he 100 percent believes that because i mean he maybe in a, in a certain sense yes but i mean he he certainly you know has a lot of his own philosophies on on life and and you know he's not like a 100% left brain or right brain i don't know it but i just I, you know i think he he can go both ways and he just you know he'll flip it to to suit his his needs um but yeah i mean uh getting back to what you're saying about imagery there's a lot of interesting stuff in this movie. Like early on, there's that shot where it opens up and, and he zoomed in on like, uh, was it like a bag of water or something that was hanging bottle of water, bottle of water. (laughs) And then he kind of like slowly pulls out from that. And I mean, it's like, you know, just something where I don't, I don't know if he specifically hung that up there for that reason, but you know, just working with what's around him and being like, this is, this is going to be interesting. And he just does it. And you know, not many other people, kind of react in that way in terms of you know coming up with visuals for movies. And I guess that's why he's so his movies look so unique.
1: <clears throat> he's he's uh, the Zack Snyder of the nineteen seventies. Yes.
3: <laughs> Does uh how how did um everyone uh, um,
1: fucking any spit any... it out man. Jesus <laughs> fuck
3: off <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs>
1: uh, how how did we think what did we think of the ending
3: yeah how did you uh uh, how would you describe it it was it was the guy uh when the explosion happens Is it is it bruno as blowing his brains out or the car exploding Mm, because you never see him again
1: I think it's supposed he to be falls out of
3: frame and then the explosion happens or, or the gun sound or whatever.
1: I think it's him blowing his brains out.
3: Mm. That's yeah, the impression I got as well. Yeah.
1: But I love when they oh. show the uh the cops show they they <laughs> arrive and it, there's a the one cop he's clearly a real cop and they just got him to say what he needed to say and he's it's something like we got a car that's on fire We've got the uh ski lift going in circles and the chicken won't stop dancing. Over. <laughs> <laughs> Send an electrician. <laughs> you know, that's the sublime absurdity of Herzog.
2: And I mean he channels that in Bad Lieutenant totally. Mm-hmm. Uh that and that's yeah, those two
0: films did remind me of each other. Well, you know what's uh something that I was thinking about too is like, the whole fact that you know a lot of these the people in the movie are not actors. But, you know, because it's not an English-language film, it's kind of like, I wonder how this would play if, you know, we actually knew... Cause like, you know, you feel, like, a little bit removed from it. Like, I couldn't... You know, you can obviously tell some of these people aren't really good actors. They're just kind of being themselves. And, and you get that feeling, but, you know, like, I wonder if it would if it would add to it or if it would take away from it if it, if it was in English, you know? Well, I mean? if
1: you're looking for direct proof... I could point to a couple people in the film that clearly aren't very good at acting. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean the guy in the diner picking up Eva, uh, the well, I trucker. Don't
2: know. I, I totally bought that. I, I totally well, I mean I that. buy
1: it in a to a degree, but if you look at it, I've we've had this discussion before about Soderbergh's films, and I mean, what's worse, a, a real person who's a real trucker per, just saying the lines is what they would say, or getting some hack fucking actor that you know is trying to build his imdb credits come in and say you know overact like you want to meet me behind the the restaurant later like okay one is a a real person who can't act but at least it's it's got a weird sincerity to it and the other person is just a a, an actor who can't fucking act and he totally takes you out of it like they're both taking you out of it at least have a real
2: person take you out of it plus that particular truck driver was a dead ringer for mike shank from american movie even the way he picked her up it's just i I thought he was good and when they're in the when they're in the truck later he's good in the seat on the cb yeah clearly he knows how to work a cb
0: (laughs) (laughs) but i see i think when it comes to situations like that i think it's more like if you're gonna have one non-actor surround him with more non-actors and then it feels more like it's not as he doesn't stand out as much right but you know it's like when one one well it depends is, i mean look at united 93 that movie is a split of
1: non-actors and actors and it is the most in my opinion the most successful split of non-actors and actors because i could swear that some of the people on the plane in that movie were the people that were on the plane but obviously they weren't <laughs> um, I mean, to see the one guy appear in Hellboy blew my mind, because there, there were people on that plane that were so real. And then the guy, Ben Sliney, who is the traffic controller, is so real, but not even on a I'm the real guy, and I'm
2: no, just doing being real.
1: Yep. He is real with a sense of drama behind it, like that he is seriously feeling what he's feeling and saying in that moment like that guy is above and beyond he when they had him doing that he must have channeled what he went through on that day because he is brilliant in that movie and i don't think there are you know not everyone in, in this film is on that level nor do they have to be really but the banker i mean yeah sometimes sometimes you can see him act trying to act a little bit but it works because he would be acting because he's being a banker you know trying to smooth (laughs) them into signing these things he's he's a slick guy
2: Uh, the movie got better every time he walked on screen that guy was so good
1: (laughs) but i mean a good example of someone trying to get a non-actor to say a line that maybe isn't so successful is the the auctioneer who does the, the the fast talking he's actually in uh Herzog did a documentary called How Much Wood Would a Woodchuck Wood, Chuck and it's about those auctions and he's in that documentary and he's perfect as the auctioneer but then when the old man comes up to him and says you know you, this is all a conspiracy what are you doing and then the auctioneer just turns to him and says I cannot understand your language and then drives away <laughs> right it's like whatever i don't i don't care it doesn't bother me like i said i'd rather have that than like some two bit fucking guy who wants to be an actor overacting but i I actually thought when he dismissed them that's how
2: people that are completely unable to process the language do react i actually found i love i I don't think they would say
1: cannot (laughs) (laughs) he'd probably say i can't understand you and drive away he wouldn't be i cannot understand Well, no no a lot of people do do that when they're
2: talking to people that don't speak english they (laughs) slow down again i actually completely (laughs) bought that and when he is in auctioneering mode that auction scene like like you said earlier of the way Herzog can capture you know real moments or take advantage of what's there that auction scene is awesome it totally works when he goes into the auctioneering mode it's mesmerizing it's just mesmerizing to watch that
1: guy do what he does and that auction scene you know is built around the fact that herzog thinks that those auctioneers it's like another form of poetry or music Mm -hmm. so he puts a scene in there where there's an auction because he has these guys so he'll do a documentary on it as well and and whatever but um yeah but i i like the use of non-actors
0: yeah i mean i i kind of made me want like wish I could just hang out with the auctioneer guy a little bit, you know, yeah. just just get him to do it on command. Yeah. It'd be pretty fun.
1: But I do think that having an actress play Eva was was a good choice. Like there are some yeah. roles that like, you know, talking about putting non-actors with non-actors, I don't know, sometimes it's good to have someone to ground things a little bit. It just depends on the abilities of that actor.
2: Well, right. all the coffee shop sequences feel incredibly authentic. Mm-hmm. Like when she's just in there and, and, and she's making small talk with some of the people and keeping everyone's coffee full and, yeah. and that, I mean, it, it feels very authentic to me. And I think that's what makes this movie work is that it's not trying to, most of the time, it's not trying to be a movie. It, it, it feels more like it's, it's, it's a document. And he's blurred the line so many which ways that uh, you just, sit back and say well does herzog find interesting today and what he's going to show me next and the fact that you're or myself personally i'm willing to absolutely go along with that i and, and he does change tone many times in the movie and i found none of those tonal changes to be particularly jarring uh and, and i'm like wow that that everything works and he makes it from the get go that it's going to be fast and loose. Like you know that right from the, the the bar scene when he goes in, and 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 even how that's framed, and and then him playing the accordion, and then them leaving Germany, and then them getting the tour guide of of Plainsview, which is not even a, uh, I mean, I mean it's not called Plainsview in the movie, but essentially that mechanic is giving him the
1: tour of um of Plainsview. Oh, that reminds me. Before I just sort of interrupt before I forget. another humorous thing and which kind of ties into thin blue line a little bit, like talking about details and everything on that tour, when the guy's talking about how everything's flat, that's why they call it uh, railroad crossing. Yeah. And uh, you know, talking about the, uh, murderer, there were four murderers. Now I think there's five and I use a metal detector to go to the pond and blah, 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 all mundane conversation. (laughs) But the humor is the fact that we hear him tell it. And then we hear, someone else retranslate it to bruno as though this is so important that we hear, we hear it twice which i think is funny i always find it interesting in films when they deal with translation and how they deal with it especially in documentaries but
2: well, and, and i, you I get think a it's scene. for
1: for for humor you get I
2: mean, a scene later on like again yeah. it has nothing to do with the through line of this movie but you do get a, a long shot scene where the the pond is in the frame and you see that you can't really even make out the actors they're so far away but you see them with the metal detector and walking around the pond and and generally the movie feels lived in as well as making his you know fairly overt political points but more than anything else all the characters and all the scenes and all the locations and everything is lived in. I mean he even calls attention to it with the stains on the on the on the piano and the and the cleaning of the stains. It's just to say that, that, that these piano. are found objects. These are these are objects that that yeah that the actor owns and and the mechanic shop the, the, the mechanic owns. And I'm sure the truck driver owned the flatbed truck that they drive to Vancouver that they that the that, that, that his girlfriend leaves them for. I um, think
1: the mechanic owned that Indian guy too in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Uh,
2: but the, the you, you mentioned earlier that with the Thin Red Line where it actually Blue broke line the case. You see, I, I do that all the time. Um, it actually broke the case. In this movie, uh, it had an impact on, on life, I guess, in one way, in that um, the lead singer from Joy Division committed suicide after... This was the last thing. I mean, he had plenty of other reasons, but this happened to be the last film that Ian Curtis watched before he committed suicide and the fact that they pressed a version of one of the albums uh and 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 it says uh, you know the chicken is still dancing or the chicken stops is are, are how they divided up the album which is a direct reference to the closing futility of 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 the thing so this in a way this you know artificial movie that is kind of documenting part of Bruno's life it, the way it played in the culture and the way it actually caused another guy pushed him over the edge, or, you know, if you want to read it that way, is kind of interesting that this movie, and, and or a Herzog movie, would contribute to something like that. And I'd love to hear what Herzog says or what his thoughts were at the time when someone told him that Ian Curtis watched this right before he committed suicide. And both of the Ian Curtis documentaries... Um, the 24 hour party people, which is kind of a fakey Lucy comedy documentary. And then the control, I have not seen control, but apparently they both. Well, neither features Strozek
0: yeah, they do. in the film. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess in a way we've kind of found the connection right there.
1: You will in, never in not. That. There will now, there will never not be a connection that can be found. I'm telling you right now.
0: Well, I guess that's a
1: good Think about point. it hard enough, but, uh, like anything, and it, you'll find it, a connection. You know,
0: I guess it's interesting that we we talked about a documentary that presents things in in sort of a fictional way and and makes it more of a drama. And then we looked at a drama that presented things in more of a documentary style and and non-actors, and it's just uh, kind of flipped the opposite. But, uh, yeah. It blew my mind. I'm flipping out. Another uh, successful yeah. movie club podcast, I would say. <clears throat> So um, any other uh, final thoughts on Strochek? Go and uh,
2: watch, go to Google Video, or you can post the link in the show notes. Uh, The the Werner Herzog eats his shoe uh, in response to Errol Morris making his first film and pissing Errol Morris off that he took a bit of thunder away from Gates of Heaven by organizing this stunt. Well, they shot the eating of the shoe, and it is online. uh, So um, I don't know where that falls into but a lot of the stuff in between in that Werner Herzog eats his shoe he's talking about these things with images and films and 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 uh documentaries and 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 life and 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 all this kind of stuff and it's just uh it's a neat tie between these two films and uh um you much like this i don't know another youtube clip with uh christopher walken cooking pears and chicken it's just fun to watch Christopher Walken in his kitchen cooking it is fun to watch a very stagey Werner Herzog stuffing shoes with onions and, and <laughs> garlic and, and boiling them in, in anticipation of, of eating his shoes a detail that Errol Morris this bet that Errol Morris doesn't even remember and yeah like Jay said it kind of pissed him off so that's a nice little uh, bonus feature in between these two filmmakers
0: Right. Um, okay. Anything else uh, on the other side of the the Skype connection?
4: <laughs> I got nothing. I just yeah. sat here and listened and sort of agreed with everything. I I, yeah. I really really like this movie. I thank Jay for uh, suggesting it or whatever because yeah, it was it was great. I, I kind of want to try to buy it. I watched it, you know, streaming online. I, I want to try to find a copy of this and watch it again and show it to people for sure.
3: Yeah, I, the the copy I watched was looked fucking horrible, so I probably didn't get much, <clears throat> as much enjoyment out of it as I probably would have had a been a better copy. But
0: is it yeah. actually available uh, streaming through Netflix? Is that where you watched it?
3: Yeah, that's where I watched it.
4: So it was a pretty good. I mean, it's not super DVD high def quality, but it's pretty damn good. And you know, you could maybe argue that it's probably better that way uh, for this kind of film. Like I said, I I kind of got a two-lane blacktop sort of tone from, you know, it's on the road a little bit, and uh, it's 70s, so it's just got that nice, warm bit of imperfection to it that I really enjoyed.
0: Yeah, no,
2: that's true. Yeah, screw Easy Rider, watch (laughs) Strozek.
0: All right, well, um, I guess we'll wrap it up. Um, So for the next episode may cause a little bit of controversy but we're kind of uh going out on our own again um despite the fact that we put the poll up and um a couple of movies came out on top we're actually switching it around and for the next episode we're going to be doing Tarsim's the fall and who directed the saragossa manuscript
2: this is bad research on our part and gamble's <laughs> not
0: here um Gam- it was Gamble's suggestion though
4: yeah he had actually he had actually seen it and he talked about it for a little bit on one of our shows um but i don't know who directed it it might be a little bit tough to track down uh from what i understand
2: no it's totally available and i can't pronounce the it? director's name um boy check
3: there you have it so
0: so, uh well so just for people who aren't aware of what this movie is what was the the bit of background you gave us kurt
2: um it's it just seems to be one of these films uh that a lot of uh directors uh martin scorsese uh louis bunnell uh they're just a lot of people um that make films seem to treasure this film and it's uh Apparently very surreal. And I mean, Gamble, who's probably listening to this, is tearing his hair out because he loves to talk about this film. And I actually want to have everyone else participate in the conversation uh, on something like this. I've been looking for an excuse personally. And Andrew, I think you're in the same uh, boat because we have been regaled with tales of this film Um from that on several different row three uh, podcasts and I've been just looking for an excuse
4: uh, to watch it so and as I'm looking at the be-all and end-all of movie information the IMDB the runtime there's three different runtimes it looks like there's one that's 124 minutes but the director's cut is 175 minutes and then there's and then there's another one listed that says it's 182. So I actually have a copy of the film, but I don't know which one it is. Uh, my guess is it's the the director's cut. and From what Matt says, we want to get the longest version possible, I think. So if you can choose between the director's cut or the regular one, uh, I'd probably opt for the director's cut if you can get your handle on it.
0: All right. Well, we'll see what, <laughs> what everyone comes yeah, up with. It might be yeah. another... Uh, what was there was another movie we watched. Oh, uh Alien was it Alien Three. Well I guess all the Alien movies have And the Warriors had multiple cuts, cuts yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But so, this
4: one is significant. I mean it's almost it's an hour. Yeah. I mean difference. I
0: guess that's true. We should probably agree on one in this case, so hopefully we can all whatever's most easily available, we'll try and do that one. Um Okay, so I guess that's about it for this week's, uh, this month's, this whatever episode of the Movie Club Podcast. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, Of course, uh, we want to hear your comments. So if you've watched these movies with us and listened to the podcast, head over to movieclubpodcast.com and leave your thoughts in the comments over there. And I suppose we will have another poll up on the site uh, this month for the next episode which we may disregard uh <laughs> I, I don't know uh it's still still nice to have some some options to choose from and to see what people think out there so vote at
2: your own risk yes stop resetting your ip address
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so uh yeah so that's about it uh thanks for listening and we'll see you next time here on the movie club podcast
3: Booyah.